Hello and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Randall, how are you? I'm doing well, Craig. Good to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's been a while since we've been on the mic. Indeed, and uh, we've had uh, a lot to catch up on, so excited to, to do so. What have you been up? So I've gotten back in the saddle after several months off. I should say maybe one ride a month, a casual ride. And it's been great. The time off was great. I had a big move across the country and get settled and so on. Been doing a lot of trail running. And it really just brought like that first longer, harder ride that I did really just reminded me uh, of why I love this experience, why I love riding a bicycle through the environment and exploring and so on and connecting with people. And so that was a really a... A wonderful thing. How did it feel uh, getting did, back on the bike? Just like, how does your body feel when you've been off for a while? It took me about 10 minutes for everything being sick. So it's many years of muscle memory. I wasn't feeling, you know, super strong or anything, but I was like, the, the motor was turning. And the fact that I've been trail running, I think helped as well. So I still had the cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. And you had some pressure though, because you had signed up for an event with your brother-in-law, right? Oh, there was no pressure there. We, my brother-in-law got, got us passes to Rooted Vermont, and we were doing the shorter one. So I think it was 48 miles or so and 4,000 or so feet of climbing. But I was planning on riding with him the whole time. So I knew that like I could just kind of, at, at that sort of easier pace, that things would be good. And yeah, I actually, that was the longest ride I had done in quite some time when I did it. And it wasn't bad at all. Honestly, I probably could have done the longer one. Granted, it had a at a very slow pace, I wouldn't have been competitive. I have not been over to Rooted Vermont, but I've heard good things. What was your experience like? So I heard that the longer course had more technical terrain on it. The shorter course I would have done on 700 by with the exception of, say, there's the last little single track section at the end, where I think even then I would have been able to ride it fine and it would have been worth it for the efficiency everywhere else. There are a couple spots where high speed dirt road descent where a little bit more volume would be nice. But if I was trying to be competitive for that course, probably 700 by 30, 700 by 32, and maybe some tire inserts to protect against impact, rim impacts and pinch flats and things like that. How'd your brother-in-law do? Was that his first event that he'd ever done? It was his first event. And prior to that, his biggest ride, I think was like around 25 or so miles with maybe 2,300 or so feet of climbing. And he did great. It was awesome. I had a great time. He's he works in the uh, the wine and spirits business, so he knew one of the the sponsors, and they had a whole team of people, and we were riding with them and just making friends along the way. Saw some people, some listeners, and some folks, some friends from the ridership, and a few of our our riders at thesis at the event as well. So that was great. But yeah, he he had a good time. It's it quite an experience to be able to do that with him. His first big event. Yeah, that's awesome for you to be able to cross the finish line and just ride that whole experience with someone who hasn't been part of the community yet. Yeah, he, he loves it. He just needs to get out more. He's got three kids, so I got to offer to babysit more often so he can get out on his own. Yeah, so that's what's been going on my end. How about yourself? So I've been back in Mill Valley about a week now, which is exciting after six weeks down in Southern California. Definitely enjoyed my time down there. Hit hit at least one group ride and hit some of my favorite trails, but always happy to be back on, on Mount Tam and very happy to be in my garage with all my gear so I can adjust things and just take advantage of what I've set up here in Mill Valley. I came back a few days early, which gave me the opportunity to ride the Marin County Bike Coalition Dirt Fondo, 
which is largely a mountain bike focused event. But I'd say in talking to Tom Boss over there, maybe 30% of people were on gravel bikes. And it was actually a rather amusing day because a friend of mine has this annual tradition of for him on his birthday doing some insane bike ride. So he texted me and he said, I'm going to start at 3 a.m. And I said, no way in hell I'm starting at 3 a.m., but I am willing to meet you. His plan was basically to take advantage of the Dirt Fondo aid stations so that Mm -hmm. he could be out there forever. So I met him at 7 a.m., which turned out to be 7.30, 7.45, no cell phone coverage. But eventually we met up at the beginning of the Fondo route and started riding together. And I did maybe four and a half hours with him. We actually did two times Deer Park because he had this whole like map in his head about how he could maximize the amount of riding with doing and maximize the number of times he was going to hit every aid station. <laughs> so this madman ended up doing, I think, 15 hours of riding, 20,000 plus feet of climbing. I was crushed just doing the 6,000 feet of climbing in four and a half hours that I did. And I was laughing in the afternoon as I was off doing something else, thinking about him continuing to flog himself. But he was in great spirits the next day. So it was pretty, pretty funny. If he's listening, bravo to you on that's a lot of time in the saddle. Exactly. Maybe more than I'm saddle all year. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> I was also able to hit the Dawn Patrol ride, which is a blast, which is going up and, and getting up to the east peak of Mount Tam for sunrise. A bit smoky, unfortunately, as with the wildfires going on in California, even though they're many miles away from us, we start to get ash in the air, which is it's just horrible to see. Yeah, I was uh, looking at some of the maps of uh, PM 2.5, you know, particulate 2.5 micron particulate matter, and the levels were some of the highest in the world for periods in the Bay Area. Yeah, it hasn't felt that bad, but definitely that morning I was up on Tam, like I felt it, which yeah, I'm not looking forward to, and hopefully we can get that forest fire under control. Yeah. Coming up uh, in Marin, the Bike Coalition's also got a ride on September 18th. I wanted to give them a little plug for it. it's the Adventure Revival ride. It, it really is a great route. Like adventure it is in the name and it's in the course. It definitely pushes the limits of gravel bike skill sets, which I love. And it's a great, interesting route starting out of Fairfax, so a little bit of north of where I normally ride. So just getting into trails that I, I, I have familiarity with, but I don't get on that much. And the inaugural ride was a couple of years ago, just before COVID. I, I, I was on that route, and I remember it being quite, quite a good day in the saddle. Yeah, Tom Boss has got a good sense of the trails all over Marin. And when he puts something together, I'm always raising my hand saying, I want to do it. Well, if anyone's thinking of doing that route, I would recommend big tires, uh, drop a post if you got one, and low gearing because there is some really steep long climbs, especially on the second half of that that route. You'll want all the gearing you can get for sure. Yeah. The other cool thing that I did this weekend is I got to introduce a friend of mine that I've been talking about gravel with for, gosh, I feel like a year, but he was in town. I happened to have a demo bike in the garage, so I, I got him out. He's primarily a roadie. And what was interesting, and I, I thought I'd bring this up because I think it, it is pretty common. As a cyclist, he had a, a full skill set. Obviously, he's been riding on the road many years, could go uphill quite well. And while the adjustment to climbing uphill was noticeable, I think he noticed when he stepped, stomped down on the pedal, he wasn't getting 100% in. He was maybe getting 80% in. 
But the biggest challenge for him was going downhill. And I I find that so interesting. And obviously anybody who's been in the mountain bike world, it's one of those things on the road, you think about, can someone climb with me and are we compatible that way? But on gravel, there's, can they climb? Can they descend? What does their technical skill level look like? And it's just really interesting seeing it from an experienced road rider's perspective, but new to gravel. Yeah. If you don't have experience in the dirt and it's really road descending is different fundamentally. And this is reflected in positioning on the bike and the geometries and so on. On a road bike, you want to have more of your mass cantilevered out over the front axle to plant that front wheel so that when you're carving corners at high speeds, it's so you have the sensitivity, but also you have the grip. On the dirt, it's the exact opposite. You want to get the weight off that front wheel. Uh, you want to use more body English, get your weight down and back over the rear axle if you can, which is where you know, droppers and the like come in. And it's just a very different animal, not to mention technical terrain and so on, once you're in that more optimal position for dirt. Yeah, that was the thing. The bike I had available for him did not have a gravel, sorry, a dropper post on it. And I felt bad ah. as I was rolling off things that didn't bother me whatsoever. I was thinking of him and thinking about the position you end up in without a dropper C post. And as a new rider tackling technical terrain from their perspective, like just having that dropper post, I think is game changing. Just one more hit of the old dropper post drum there, Craig. I know. Uh, I know. Yeah, 100% with you there. I, I feel like if there was a, an Uber dropper post industry, I am like the number one salesperson for it. <laughs> I will, I've said this before, I'll never own another bike with a front derailleur and I'll never own another bike without a dropper post. I use it on the road all the time. There's nothing quite like bombing past somebody on 650s in a bullet tuck when they're on an aero bike pedaling full bore and you're just coasting by them because you get that, that frontal area and you can stop when you need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was talking to him. I think he's jazzed on the idea of a gravel bike now. And I, I managed to intelligently plan our routes so I didn't scar him and put him on some extremely technical terrain in his first weekend of riding. But I know getting bikes continues to be a challenge. How are things going with Thesis? And are you, you guys able to get bikes out there? So we have shipped uh, a decent number of bikes this year. Ran out of our mechanical groups. Fortunately, had placed a, a pretty good sized order for electronic groups of the, the new mullet builds that we're seeing out there. And that actually you just ride, rode. We'll talk about that in a second. And we are going to be launching those by the time this podcast goes up. So if you're looking for a bike and uh, you like what we do, just uh, set up a consult. We can have a personal conversation. Now, you've been riding the Canyon Grizzle with the same sort of mullet setup, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't know exactly how the thesis is going to come set up, but yeah, I've got a, a SRAM mountain bike, rear derailleur and rear cassette mm-hmm. and force access shifters up front and just rocking the 1050 cassette in the back. So big range, which is great for where we live out where, where I'm living right here in Mill Valley. Yeah, I definitely use all of that for sure. Yeah. Is that kind of the setup that you are talking about shipping on the bikes? So I went with the rival levers because they're essentially the same weight. And so we were able to take the money we would have spent on force and put it elsewhere in the bike. Uh, and then the GX rear derailleur. But in terms of gearing, I, I went with the 1052 cassette as well to get more range. And then we'll once we can get them in, we'll augment that with a, a tighter range, slightly taller cassette from our friends over at E13 so that you get a staggered gearing in the future. But otherwise, it's essentially, effectively, the same setup there. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it's been interesting. I received this Canyon Grizzle while I was down in Southern California. So 
testing it on terrain that wasn't my home terrain. It's been interesting because you and I have talked about bike fit and stack and reach in particular. And this bike definitely stacks up differently and it's listed as a medium. So I was like, when they offered to send me one, I was like, oh, obviously I'm on a medium, but it's definitely taller and longer. And I needed to make some adjustments in addition to the fairly radical componentry I had on there, which we can talk about a bit later. Yeah, I'm just looking at the geometry compared to the your regular bike, your medium thesis in, in mine, which I read the large, and it's actually medium looks more on par with our large than with our medium. And it, it's a different, just looking at the geos, the, the head tube angle is a wash. It's definitely longer. So presumably you were running that with a much shorter stem. Correct. What, what stem length were you using? Curious. I went down to, I think, an 80. Yeah. And it still felt long, yep. which makes sense given the numbers I'm seeing here because it's 25 millimeters more reach. Uh, so that's going to be a bike that you're well, actually, let me ask you before I, I hypothesize here, what, how did it feel? How was the handling? How did it differ from what you're used to? So it definitely felt big. We, in, this, in the context of this conversation, we had also talked about the Ribble CGR that I've been riding as well. And those two bikes are actually quite similar, it would seem, in, in terms of the way they feel. I definitely mm -hmm. felt like I had a lot more bike up underneath me, because, particularly because of where the, the top tube sat relative to where my legs are. When you look at it, when you, I, I tend to have, I have long legs, so I tend to run a lot of seat post. But on, on those two bikes, on the Canyon and the Ribble, it looks like a more traditional road amount of seat post showing on the bike versus the more that I show on the thesis. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm looking at the small grizzle here too, and its reach is longer than our, the reach on our large. Granted, it's at, the stack is lower, so it's at, it's probably on par if you had the handlebar in the same position, but that's really yeah. saying something about the fit philosophy here. It's very much a long reach sort of bike designed to be used with a short stem in order to get those same you know points in space grafted. Not sure, I think I've shared in, in the past, I'm a big fan of you know these bikes being much more versatile. So that style of geometry is much more getting into the direction that mountain bikes have gone into with the short stems and the long, longer wheelbase and so on. So it's fine for dirt. Definitely need to make sure to get a short enough stem, but as a it does compromise it as a road machine in terms of being able to plant that front end like we were just talking about. Yeah, I'm curious how have you how'd you find the handling overall? It's it, it's super capable. It's super capable. I got I need to make some adjustments on it, but I've ridden it on a couple familiar trails here in Mill Valley just to get a sense of it. There's a lot going on because I've got a Rudy suspension fork on it, so there's just mm -hmm. a lot of inputs going into my mind right now. So I want to spend some more time on it. I would say overall, like the spec on the bike and sort of the tire clearance and everything they've done with it is spot on in terms of the trends we've been talking about. So I think they've done a great job there. And it's just the fit really for me that is, is still work in progress, as you've sort of stated. So let's talk about some of those uh, components that you have on there. So we've talked about the mullet before. Yeah. So, you know, I've been working with SRAM and it was actually a great opportunity. I've got access to their Explore lineup, which I talked about one or two episodes ago in a deep conversation with Chris over at SRAM about the philosophy of what they're doing with the Explore lineup. So super happy. I, I love where they're going with it. Included in that 
lineup is the RockShox Rudy suspension fork, which is offered in 30 millimeter and 40 millimeter of suspension, as well as an access wireless dropper post, which we can get into separately. But the, the Rudy suspension fork, as any suspended item in the gravel market ever hits the social media airwaves, it's a point of extreme controversy for one mm-hmm. re- reason or another. I am always and have always been very open to this innovation because I think it's super interesting. The fork rides very well. It delivers confidence in cornering, obviously confidence as you hit more technical terrain. And as with everything in gravel, it's just a trade-off because it there's so many moving pieces, right? We've talked over the last year about the trend towards larger tire volume and the various parts of your body and bike that provide suspension today. This is now another bit on that continuum that riders can choose from depending on you know where they live and what they're looking for. So I got a couple questions for you. One is what was the tire volume you were running and on what width rims? I was running 700 by 45. Okay. Tires. Good size tire. Yeah, and I was running Zip 303s, and I don't have the internals available to me off the top okay. of my head. But you were able to run them at a decently low pressure. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. exactly. And it, I was trying to think about how to articulate it for people, and, and maybe for local riders in Marin, this might make sense. But I rode down Coastal View Trail the other day on it. And Coastal View, as you and I have differing opinions on Coastal View, I will go down it, but begrudgingly. The last and, third of it is all washboard breaking bumps. Yeah, a lot of ruts, just very difficult, very fatiguing on the body. So I'll go down it on a group ride if people are stoked to do that. But generally, when I design routes, I'll avoid it. And if I'm certainly from riding by myself, I'm not going to go down it. So I, I asked myself the question before and after riding that bike with that suspension fork on it, would I add coastal view to my roots knowing that I had that bike and the answer I think is no I wouldn't so it didn't materially change like whether I would enjoy going down that route did I go down faster was I more comfortable absolutely but I still got beat up I mean look we're only talking about 40 millimeters of travel added to the bike so I just found personally found that quite interesting I'm curious too is have you tried throwing road wheels on this thing to see how it feels as a road bike not yet not yet, but I did go down some straight up fast fire road descents on it and discovered like it, it definitely is confidence inspiring in the corners yeah. and in any rough stuff, not surprisingly. So I, as I said on the podcast with SRAM, I think if you dubbed your descending skills a six out of 10, this is definitely going to bump you up to a 7.5 right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not going to make you a 10 by any means. It's not like going using a a full suspension bike or something like that, but it's definitely going to improve your ride experience. So I know a lot of athletes out there who, if they honestly looked at their shortcomings as a gravel rider, descending off-road in technical stuff may be their Achilles heel. Certainly, as I said, with introducing a new roadie new to gravel, like descending was the bigger challenge than the climbing. So I know me personally, when I started down the gravel bike road, I set up my bike to be a, you know, a great climbing bike. And then over time, 
have shifted and said, the climbing is the climbing. Like I'll sort that out, but I want to have more fun descending off roads as I tend towards bigger tires on my thesis. I've got the redshift suspension stem, I like a nice wide handlebar, but that's where I've landed based on my personal interest. And I just, the only thing I'll say about the fork is I just want the listeners to have an open mind to it. It, it may not make a lick of sense where you live, but where I live, like it does make some sense. I think that taking the edge off in a gen, like generally stated, I've been coming around to the value of that a lot these days as I start to feel little aches and pains in my joints and things like this. And first thing, as I've said before, big tires on wide rims run at low pressures. I'm looking forward to testing out some tire inserts too, which allow even lower pressures without the risk of pinch flats and rim strikes, which is the main limiter on tire pressure. Even running that suspension stem, I'm thinking about trying one out as well. And I've heard from some strong riders, technically and, and physically strong riders, that that suspension stem, that redshift that you're running has made a world of difference. And it makes sense. And it's you give up a little bit in terms of if you were going on a road ride and like hammering a sprint, yeah, it's going to flex underneath you. But for just generalized riding and, and riding on the road where you're not trying to hammer the legs off of somebody on a group ride, it makes a ton of sense. And so the suspension fork seems to be the next obvious progression in that. And if you're having a machine that is really focused on the off-road experience and it's not really a road machine, it makes sense. And, and frankly, any bike that would fit the fork is already going to be a bike that has a geometry that's not really road oriented anyways, because you have to you know, adjust for the geometry of the fork with that frame. Yeah. I think as you're, as a rider, we talked about this earlier that you're mentally stacking up what suspension you get. So if you've got a, you know, 40 millimeter tire, maybe you're getting 20 millimeters of travel there. Your body mm -hmm. provides probably the most suspension out of the equation. Bikes and stems and parts have, have to some degree worked on compliance and a, a bit of movement depending on the model. So this is all part of this equation that people have to figure out for gravel bikes, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. And I'm very much of the mind, like I love throwing a set of road wheels on my gravel bike and going and hammering and having really feeling like I'm giving up nothing, but that's, that's how I ride. Everybody's going to fit into a different niche. Yeah. Um, you've been riding there, the dropper post as well. I have. Yeah. And that's been interesting and has illuminated some of my thoughts on dropper posts as well. I mean, one of the things it's wireless, so that's mm -hmm. just cool. There's just virtually no friction. Like when you drop that thing, when you throw the levers in the way that they're linked to the post, it goes right down. So that's neat. It is a two lever press. So you're pressing both levers at the same time to drop it. Unlike my wired dropper post, which I'm swinging the what would be the front derailleur lever to make the drop yeah, your happen. Yeah, your cabled post. Yeah. yeah. But the, yeah, the that's biggest... actually interesting. I'm just thinking in terms of, do you notice any compromise in control or like the extra cognitive load? Or I guess as you get used to it, the cognitive load is really not an issue, but like control having to do things with both hands right before you're transitioning into something technical. Yeah, a little bit of obviously like just change in understanding and, and muscle memory of how that works. It was funny. I had mentioned to, to Chris at SRAM that I drop my post one-handed sometimes. And he's like, we were trying to, I was trying to articulate when and why that happened. Cause I know I do it. I just couldn't explain why. And he sees that. So he was saying to himself, that seems dangerous being one-handed and dropping the post. 
But a lot of times, obviously, because it's body weight actuated, once you throw the, 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 the lever attached to the wire, I might be taking a sip of water knowing that I'm rolling into a descent. Mm. So at a safe yep. grade at that point, drop the post, just sit down lower, finish my bottle, put it back in, and then start ripping the downhill. Whereas obviously you can't do that if you've got, it, if you've got to do two hands to drop the post. Yeah, and transitioning from two hands on the hoods to going into technical, you get your left hand on that lever and you're already pushing the seat, the lever to drop the seat while you're bringing your right hand down into the drops for that control. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, I'm getting, hand. there's a external setup that you can get. I think it's called a blip from SRAM that basically mm -hmm. will be a one button trigger that I'm going to get my hands on to just where I end up netting out and all this. But the other really interesting thing, and it's something, frankly, like I haven't really had to think about because I've only had either the stock post that came on my thesis as a dropper or the PMW coast dropper, both of which are around 100, 110 millimeter drop. Mm -hmm. The access dropper, reverb dropper from RockShox is 50 or 75 millimeter drop. And the demo bike that I was afforded had the 50 millimeter drop on. So half of what I've been used to of late combined with the fact that I'm riding a bike that has, that is taller. Mm -hmm. So I think it really put a, a point on me thinking about the distance of the drop. And I would be in the, in the RockShox lineup, I would definitely would prefer to be riding 75 millimeter and having gone back to riding the PNW on my thesis, like that hundred millimeter, I enjoy it. Like I, like it just yeah. clears the air. And if you look at what's happened on mountain bikes, you have, I think going up to 170, 180, which there, there are compromises when you get to those lengths in terms of you have to have, you have to have a bigger C-tube diameter than you see on gravel bikes. The whole construction's heavier and things like this. So I do think that there's a limit to where you want to go on these bikes because they're also you're also wanting them to be optimized for for weight in a way that on a mountain bike is less of a concern, particularly like an enduro bike. But yeah, I wouldn't give up any of the the travel. 100 is my minimum, and I've always tried to put people on the longest post they can get. It does. I wonder why, uh, given that there I haven't really heard of any issues with long going longer, like up to 100 or 110. Why why they constrained to only 50 or 70? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of the, the mechanical design of what they're doing. I do know from SRAM, they did a lot of testing and surveying around what they wanted to put out in the market. And they arrived at those two distances. I suspect if I was riding the 75 millimeter, the difference would not have been particularly stark. Although I tend to be with you, like the more the merrier in terms of yeah. the dropper drop. Yeah, I suspect that they'll I wouldn't be surprised if we hear about a longer version at some point. I have no inside information on this, but I think that the market is going towards having these bikes be as capable as they can. And it just seems like a, an, you know, even if it added 30, 40, 50 grams to the post, those are some of the best grams you could add in terms of your ride experience and even performance. Yeah. Yeah. The other interesting thing is it has a technology called active run, which is a suspension. And I think the interesting part about that and the PNW coast post is, has that as well. But if I compare the two, the PNW post is active regardless of where it is in drop. So whether it's fully locked out or down below, you get that, that cush that is air tuned. On the reverb dropper, it only is active when you are below the very topmost point. Yeah. So you can drop it like a millimeter or two. 
which is pretty inconsequential, especially for a short distance. Totally. And I, I get why they would have it locked out at the top. I don't know for me as someone who rides at the top, I that it suspended at the very top most part on my PNW only because if I'm taking a hit, I'm taking a hit. So anytime mm. I've in my mind, anytime, like I feel it move, I think to myself, that's saving my spine in some way. Like it's less jarring because I have that movement. I believe the rationale on the, on the rock shocks product is like, when you're up there, you want it to be solid. That's your like high performance pedaling position. So I, I totally get the rationale. Yeah, as I think about it, I haven't ridden either of these posts yet. I'm familiar with the PNW. The on, if I was using this bike as an all-arounder, including for road, I would want something that could lock out entirely. And so I like that you know element of the uh, the rock shocks there. On the other hand, if both of them, like is the, is your PNW, is, does it have an adjustable air spring or is it just yeah. one? It's a- oh, okay. So then you could totally inflate that a bit higher and really use it just to take the edge off of your, you know, spine shattering impacts. Yeah. That's um, the way I have mine set up. And I'm not surprised that your comment, like based on everything you said, you know, with it locked out, you desire a bike that is performing like a road bike, essentially. So that would make sense based on how you like to set your bike up. And I like, again, like one bike that does as much as possible. And so I I actually think that maybe the implementation is something that we can have a disagreement on, but just the general idea of this little suspension feature, I think it's an innovation that's, that's worthy and probably adds a few grams and is probably worth all of those grams. Yeah. I remember when I first got on it, I used to think to myself, gosh, when it goes down, I'm, I'm losing it. I'm losing efficiency. And then I quickly dispelled that and said, if it's going down, I've taken a hit and that's where the efficiency was lost. It was not the fact that my body was somehow buffered from it. Yeah. 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 Anything else on the, on that bike and that, that build that we want to nerd out about? Just that the fit issues we've been talking about, I know you've done a deep dive in this in terms of bike fit and we haven't released it yet, but I'm excited. Do you want to just talk about that project you've been working on? Sure. Yeah. So we brought in coach Patrick Carey again. Uh, He did the, was it the five skills, five gravel skills? I forget the specific name of the episode that the two of you did together, which was really popular. So brought him on to really talk about fit. We really looked at it in three different ways. One is like the way that a lot of people, which is like the throw the leg over it approach or like looking at a fit chart on some website, which is not great. And then you have starting with a fitter and having the fitter determine your points in space on a fit cycle even before you buy your bike and then having the ability to either choose the bike or customize the prior to buying it which is something that that is the optimal but then most of us already have a bike so then what can we do to dial that existing bike to get it to perform in the way we want to and in particular to think of it not as a how do we fit ourselves to the bike but how do we fit the bike to us and it sounds like you're you were on a bike that you were trying to fit to and really looking at what the optimal points in space are for you and then trying to graph those over to that machine would probably result in a, a much better experience, even if it ends up being the case. I wouldn't be surprised if you'd be better off on a small on that grizzle, frankly, looking at the reach on it and so on. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. I'm super excited about the Bike Fit 101 episode that will get out, and I, I, I don't have an exact timeline for it right now. In my mind, I've been thinking about this sort of foundational series of episodes that we'll release and package up that are really like the starting point for anyone getting into the sport. And further with fit, 
you can always learn something about bike fits. If you're not already a subscriber, subscribe. It'll come right in your feed when it's ready to go. Yeah. So how do we want to close up today? Yeah, the other thing that's been going on in, in gravel recently, we just had uh, SBT Gravel conclude. Great race out in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Everybody, I've done it once before. Fun, fun race, super well organized. And by all accounts, it was a great experience for everybody who was out there. But one of the, there's a little bit of a controversy that, that kind of kicked up and that the, the winner of the female category of the race races on a, a mixed sex team and was getting some support along the way from a male rider. That, that support basically included like getting a, a bottle handoff when she was running low. And it's just spurred up a bunch of controversy. I've spoken about this with some female guests, just the idea of how do you manage when you're starting in a, a mass start with men and women, tactically, how are you figuring it out? And there's always been this sort of very easy and obvious solution that you do what you need to do as a female cyclist and you're following the wheels that you can. Obviously, you have the the possibility of burning out if you're going out with a lead group, but it seems to have always worked itself out very congenially. And this was the per first episode I've seen where there was definitely a lot of feathers ruffled about what happened because it allowed the winner to maybe not stop at an aid station where others had to stop to refill water because they were getting a water bottle handoff from a teammate. Yeah, that's actually interesting because in this case, it's I, I would suspect that maybe the male who was giving the handoffs is was essentially like sacrificing any attempt at being competitive in his field in order to support this woman in her field. And that is an advantage that, you know, the other women wouldn't have unless they found somebody who is uh, presumably a bit faster than they are to grab, to be ahead or to be able to stop at the, uh, the aid stations. It's not like in road racing, elite road racing, where you have team cars and you have a domestique who drops back and so on, which is itself like it's supporting the leader, but at least everyone has to, is racing the same race in a way the teams are racing the same race. It's it definitely gets takes gravel much more into the win at all costs side of things that has uh, well is not why a lot of us came over to it in the first place. But at the same time, like this is not as of right now, it's not against the rules. I don't I think it's actually a clever strategy if you're wanting to show up to an event and be as competitive as possible not having to stop at the aid stations and riding within the rules makes a lot of sense. So it's it's no criticism of the people involved. But as a community, really thinking about, is this the type of culture that we want to cultivate within the events? Or maybe certain events become more competitive for the elite ride and the rest of the events are support yourself. Yeah. In yeah. road racing, stage races, the amateur stage races, they have races where you can't bring a time trial bike you have to do the time trial on your standard bike. And that's playing field leveling elements. So maybe something here for certain events would make sense like that as well. Yeah, I think we're certainly going to see. And there's been a number of event organizers who have been playing around with different formats. I, from what I gathered, the overwhelming kind of interest in the, the female professionals is to continue to maintain this to be a mass start kind of situation where men and women are starting together because i do think the camaraderie and shared experience for athletes elite and otherwise is important to maintain in the sport i think there's also this 
a little bit of maybe frustration and concern from the event organizers committees, uh, organizers of how much do they need to regulate and put rules in place? Because gravel has always been blessed with it's been pretty easy from a rules perspective. Essentially, like I've seen, I've been part of events that basically had one rule, which was don't be a dick. Yeah, be kind to your fellow riders, have a good time, be competitive, but not at the expense of being kind to others. That's a much more polite way of saying it than I did, Randall. <laughs> but this is this is something that I may explore in a future episode, because I, I think one thing I do like about Gravel is that everybody, regardless of where they sat in this little mini debate that we have going on now, has been kind and polite and, and recognized and acknowledged that, that the woman in question did nothing wrong by the letter of the law in terms of that race's rules. So we should just take it as an opportunity to ask ourselves where and how do we want the sport to evolve and uh, have an open conversation about it. Yeah, it's not really clear where the line is until someone gets close to it or crosses it. But it's not really this is not we're not talking about something moral here. It's more what is the culture we want to cultivate? Yeah, Um, exactly. So if you have uh, if anybody has thoughts on that, definitely hit us up in the ridership channel. We'd love to have your opinions. I think a lot of us, the majority of us are mid packers and these type of things don't really have much of a net effect on our experience. But yeah, just interesting to hear what everybody has to say. And I want to just throw one more thing on this topic before we go off it, which is this happens to be a male rider assisting a female rider, but it could very well be an elite female rider helping a male. And so I'm, there's a lot of women who are vastly faster than I, than I am. And if I were to show up to an event in my, in my non-elite category and have handoffs from an elite female rider, it'd be the same dynamics. Yeah. And one interesting point I think I saw another pro mention was that, hey, if this is going to be the way we go, then let's pay women to play that domestic role, the domestique role. Maybe it's fairer in the long run if we go down that route that, yeah, you can support, you can have teams. It should be a woman doing that work would feel fairer than a male that is maybe backing off their pace to be supportive of the female rider or vice versa. Yeah, it's really hard. To, there's a lot of nuance here. This will be a fun one to to continue on in a future episode. So send your feedback through the ridership or through other channels because we'd love to get the community's input on this. Now that you've been riding again and situated in New England, I know you've been pushing some initiatives on the ridership and getting some people together. Yeah, just slowly getting some local group rides going. So some around the area where I'm living in Waltham. So a couple of group rides out of in the Belmont area. And then this weekend, doing a ride up in Gloucester, led by one of our riders, and just slowly trying to build the community here and re-engage. I, a lot of the people I used to ride with either aren't here anymore, or some of them aren't riding as much, or, or are, I was much more of a roadie back in those days. So trying to reconnect for personal reasons as well, but then also to try to build out the ridership New England community. So if you're in the New England area, please join us. I would love to meet up for a ride or a cup of coffee and a conversation and explore the local trails. Right on. And I need to get my act together and do the same. Now that I'm back in Northern California, we're definitely overdue for a group ride. So maybe sometime in September, I'll call something out and get the uh, local ridership community here together. Excellent. Yeah, it sounds good. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of In the Dirt. Thanks for joining us. As we mentioned, hit us up over at the ridership. Just visit www.theridership.com to get your free invite to this global community. 
Also, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can visit buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. All your contributions are greatly appreciated. So until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. Thank you.